0: Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney and I'm joined today by my friend and president of Allen Engineering, Jay Allen. Jay, thanks for coming in, man.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so I would love to talk about Allen Engineering and just the impact that um, the company has in our city and really all over the world. But before we do that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you came from and kind of how you got to where you are today?
1: Okay. Well, how far back you want me to go? Man,
0: you can go all the way back to childhood. So okay. anything that you think is, um, yeah, worth sharing, we'd love to hear. So,
1: so um, my um, my dad is from North, from Piggott, and my mom is from uh, Central Illinois, and they met on a blind date and got married. And um, so I was born in Illinois. Kind of a fun fact. Uh, and. Um, Moved to Piggott in the late 60s, and we moved to Paragould in the early 70s. So I grew up in Paragould. I'm a, I'm a Paragould Bulldog, class of 81. Class of 81, baby. Yes.
0: What did you do in high school? Did you have any uh, certain hobbies, anything you were into?
1: Well, everybody's going to think I'm a real geek, but, well, I probably am anyway. But um, <laughs> I, was, um, I was into sports. wasn't naturally uh, gifted as an athlete, but I did enjoy sports. And, of course, that's what you did back then. I was a football player, a long-distance runner, and then I was also real big into boy scouting and uh, really enjoyed scouting and uh, had a big impact on me.
0: What did you like about
1: uh, the scouts? I, well, a uh, couple things. One, it was, I think it was kind of the earliest place I was able to exercise some leadership talent that I have that's um, God-given. Mm-hmm. And then also, I love the outdoors, and um, I love to be outside, and we did a whole lot of camping and high adventure stuff. And uh, so that was awesome. Made some really good friends through it too.
0: Are the scouts, is that still going strong? It seems like it's dwindled.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think it has for a couple reasons. One, there's so many other things vying for young people's attention today, mainly screens. Yeah, And then two, I think um, the scouts, unfortunately, have come under a lot of political pressure from different groups that it's evidently been seems to have been a pretty easy target, Yeah, but uh, their mission and what they stand for uh, still today, I think, resonates with young people.
0: Hmm. So you're um, playing some sports, you're into scouting, um, and then you graduate in 81? Yes, sir. Right, as a Bulldog. So what did you do from there?
1: Well, um, another funny story. So I was a big Razorback fan growing up in uh, Paragould in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was going to go to Fayetteville, and uh, everything was on go, and um, the spring break of my senior year, my parents came to me and said, we think you need to look at other schools, and I'm like, why? I've already made my mind up, and so my dad being my dad said, well, let me put it to you this way, son. You can go to Fayetteville, and you can pay for it, or you can go anywhere else, and we'll pay for it, and I said, okay, when do we leave? (laughs) What was that about? Why do you think they wanted you not to go somewhere other than Fayetteville? Well, um, and... I say this with all respect to every University of Arkansas graduate, including my son, who hopefully will listen to this. But uh, University of Arkansas had kind of a nickname called Fayette Nam. Have you ever heard that nickname? <laughs> I've never heard it. Yeah, that's what we called it back in the '70s and, and early '80s, and uh, it was known for it was like one of the top ten party schools. Oh, okay. as, as uh, I think Playboy magazine actually did a dossier on it. It was really it was wild and playboy magazine on the university of arkansas being a party school look it up and i better uh, not (laughs) yeah don't don't look at the playboy part but (laughs) anyway it was a big party school and i was you know being rushed by some fraternities and i think my parents kind of saw the the writing on the wall my priorities were not academics at that point in my life so by um, a strange set of circumstances i ended up in all places waco texas going to baylor university
0: okay a little bit different than U of A?
1: A little bit different.
0: What did you major in?
1: I majored in business, finance, and real estate.
0: Okay, and what did you want to do okay, real estate? So did you want to come out and hit right into real estate? with the plan, or was it to come back and work in the company, the family company?
1: Uh, well, another funny story. My father wanted me to be an engineer because he's an, he was an engineer. And so I did that for two uh, semesters and nearly flunked out. And my dad said, maybe you're not an engineer. I said, I don't think I am. (laughs) You might not be. (laughs) I might not be an engineer. And uh, so I, all my buddies all were in the business school and they seemed to be doing just fine. So I said, I think I want to be business and uh, started taking business classes and I loved them. I just like, it's like went from being really hard to really easy for Hmm. me. So I I fell in love with, with business at that point.
0: Okay. And did you meet Leslie when you were there at Baylor?
1: No. Most people think we did meet because we both went to Baylor, but we were exactly four years apart. So I graduated in August of 85, and she started in August of 85. So we missed each other. All right.
0: So how did y'all eventually... So y'all got married when? 1993.
1: 93. And when y'all got married, were you living in Texas? Uh, yes, I was. So we met, uh, Leslie went on to get, go to graduate school at TCU. And I took my first job out of college was I was a banker in Fort Worth and we met in a singles ministry at a local church in Fort Worth.
0: Oh, nice. Um, so pick me up from there. What, what's the road to eventually leading you back to where you were today as president of Allen engineering? What road did you travel?
1: Well, a rather secured t- cute, this one, but so, uh, when I, Finished up banking, I honestly was kind of bored um, with banking uh, and was looking for something else and decided to go back and get my master's degree. So I um, enrolled and was accepted to um, Texas A&M, and they had a special program called international marketing, which was something I was very interested in because at the bank I had quite a few customers that were doing international business, importing, exporting, and stuff like that, and it it was real interesting to me. And um, I had this crazy idea that I was going to get my master's, become fluent in Spanish, and take an overseas assignment. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was one of those kind of crazy dreams I had. So, but in the meantime, Leslie and I started, we had been friends and had gone on some dates, but been on again, off again. And uh, so we, um, we got together, and one of my buddies finally said, uh, what is wrong with you? Don't you see that she's crazy about you? And I know you're crazy about her. So why don't y'all get together? I'm like, I don't know. I think I had a commitment issue at that moment. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, I was kind of shamed into, you know, finally going, getting some courage. Yeah. And so uh, within six months of that time, we were engaged. So a very fast engagement, very fast, um, our very fast romance, very fast engagement. And, uh, so we got married while I was still in graduate school at A&M. How old? Um, I was 20, gosh, yeah, I was 29.
0: 29. Okay.
1: So how did you get back to Paragold? Um, I got back to Paragold. We, when I graduated, we moved to Atlanta and we lived there for five years. I worked for the business while I was in Atlanta and everything I did for Allen engineering. engineering and everything I was involved in was international and that was my degree from A&M and that was my passion so that's kind of what happened was rather than the multinational assignment with a, a big comp- company like consumer products say PepsiCo or something like that I ended up going to work for the family business but still doing what I wanted to do and that was mainly focused on international sales marketing. Okay, so you're there in Atlanta doing international sales, right? And we have two babies uh, while well, we're in Atlanta, and most people won't remember this, but there was something called Y two K coming. Oh
0: yeah, and
1: uh, so and uh, there was you know the it was going to be you know something like the zombie apocalypse, I guess. But um, so there was a lot of pressure to kind of like batten down the hatches, and we're like. You know, northeast Arkansas wouldn't be that bad to live in. Uh, you know, raise a family in. My father was putting a lot of pressure on me to come to the headquarters. I was commuting once or twice a month at that time from Atlanta to Paragould.
0: What was he wanting you to come back and do?
1: Um, I Well, I think kind of to be his right-hand man okay. is probably what he had, had in mind. And so, so we bit the bullet and moved uh, to northeast Arkansas. And so um, – in 1999 and I was fully planning on us living in Paragould and my wife is from Atlanta, Metro Atlanta. So, um, nothing against Paragould. I love Paragould. Uh, but she said, Hmm, just a little bit small for me. Mm-hmm. So we chose to live in Jonesboro and we've been living there since 1999. All right. So tell me a little bit about Allen
0: engineering. Um, most people I'm guessing that are listening to this first off, probably don't even know what you do. Um, and then secondly, they don't understand probably how big of a footprint you have really in the, in, in the industry, in the concrete industry. So tell me the history of Allen Engineering, because it's a really, I've heard the story, but it's quite impressive. Um, sure. How did that get started? I know it's with your father, but tell right. me Right,
1: yeah, my father, Dwayne, and my mother, Marianne, started the business in 1964 in Piggott, and um, they started it as a ready-mix concrete operation. So, but I want to tell the story about my dad and the hitchhiking. If it's yeah, yeah, man. So, there's a great story. Go back a little bit further in the late 1950s. My father was living in Piggott, and there was you know relatively no employment here in Northeast Arkansas. So, he and some buddies had gone to St. Louis to try to get on at the GM plant. And I think there were four of them, all from Piggott, and um, three of them got a job, but my father did not. And the guy that interviewed him said, I'm going to do you a real big favor and not hire you. And he was, like, you know, crushed because, you know, that was working for GM in the late 50s was, you know, a golden ticket. So I guess his buddy stayed up there. I don't really know the details. But anyway, he's hitchhiking back from St. Louis to Piggott. And right outside of Hatai, Missouri, he got picked up by a gentleman um, by the name of McDonald. So he's, like,
0: almost home compared to, like, Mm -hmm. where St. Louis
1: is. Yeah, and he told Mac, Mac, uh, Mac Pine, he said, uh, you know, he was, I, Mac had a job. He was in the uh, interstate landscaping business, and this was back in the go-go days of the interstate highway program where we were building hundreds and thousands of miles of highway all across the country. And um, Mac, anyway, he said, you know, Dad asked him to take him to Kennett. He said, you know what, I like you. Um, I'll just take you all the way to Paracool, I mean, all the way to Piggott. So he did, and um, uh, they got struck up a conversation. And as they were pulling in Dad's driveway, they said, he said, Look, you don't really know me, but he said, If you can get to Springfield, Illinois, I will give you a job. And at that point, my dad was like, I'm pretty much open to anything. And so uh, he did. Dad uh, went to Springfield, and he told me, he said, When he got to Springfield, he had $5 in his pocket. And he was just praying that this guy would answer the telephone. So Monday morning, he calls Mac Pine, says, this is Dwayne Allen from Piggott. I'm here. And he said, come on down. Mac put him to work with a good job, put him through junior college. Jeez. And then helped him get into the University of Illinois as a civil engineer and helped him through uh, University of Illinois. Wow. So my middle name is MacDonald in his honor.
0: Isn't that crazy? And so you, you go to St. Louis with your buddies because you're going to get a job at GM. Three of your buddies get hired, and they're like, we're going to do you a favor. We're not going to hire you. And you're just like, dang, Like now I've got to head back to Paragould, But I guess one of his buddies, or back to Piggott. one of his buddies are driving. So he's walking back because so he doesn't have a vehicle. Right. Can you imagine how discouraged you would be on that walk back from St. Louis to Piggott, And you're almost there. And then this guy picks you up. And it's like, hey, I'm going to give you a job. And I mean, there's just like so many. Like, I was, I can't remember if we were talking to who we were talking to about this, Bill, in a previous podcast. But so much of success that you see, um, a lot of it involves hard work. But there's also whether you want to call it luck or the providence of God that has to play <laughs> into the hand as well. Which is exactly what you see in that story, right? because yeah. that changed everything.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there would not be an Allen Engineering if it had not been for McDonald Pine.
0: Wow! So puts him through college, gets his degree in civil engineering, and eventually he moves back to Pigot, right?
1: Yeah. So he was involved, and in, he worked for a, a highway contractor outside of out of St. Louis, and they were doing highway construction, like I fifty five, I fifty seven, the Eisenhower Expressway in Chicago. So big jobs. Um, but um, I know you probably find this hard to believe but um missouri and illinois um politics and construction was a little bit corrupt back then and uh, dad could see that somebody was going to probably be a fall guy at some point in this process and he was concerned about his situation and so he um he said i'm gonna um go back to my hometown and start a business and he looked and Um, He was really into concrete. That was kind of one of his favorite building materials. I mean, he used all of them, but he loved concrete. And I guess he said, I'm going to start a ready mix concrete operation in my hometown.
0: All right. So that was what year? 1964. 1964. So he's doing the ready mix thing. At what point did he say, I'm going to start making the equipment that basically spreads or, you know, finalizes the concrete?
1: Yep. So that uh, grew to a pretty sizable operation in the um, early to mid-70s. Five um, ready-mix plants, three con- uh, sand and gravel operations. And uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, was killed in an accident at one of the uh, gravel pits in 1973. Hmm. And so, you know, think about this. You're employing your father, and your father dies at your business from a workplace accident. Oh, man. It's pretty tragic. What happened to him? Um, well, um, he basically fell into a gravel hopper and was crushed to death. Wow!
0: Did your dad ever talk about that?
1: Mm, no, I mean, it idea. had to
0: have had a massive impact on it.
1: Oh, it did. Well, so that was the beginning of the end of the ready mix concrete sand and gravel okay. operation. So, my dad just lost all interest in the business after that. Yeah, I can see why. Right. So, um, so in seventy six, we moved to conroe texas which is north of houston and my dad went to work for a guy who had this new invention called the texas screed and he did that for about two years and then in 1977 we moved back to Paragould, and dad started making his first piece of equipment which was what we called the razorback screed
0: Hmm. and so he moves back he starts this right here he designs the screed Mm -hmm. right um does that take off? Like, is it like he, he puts that out there and someone, like, looks at the design and is like, oh, yeah, we should build this. It's a great idea. Like,
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it was, you know, it seems very rudimentary by today's standards, but in the mid-1970s, that was a pretty revolutionary piece of equipment for uh, basically placing and uh, screening concrete. I mean, the technology before that was a 2 by 4 or a, Uh, jitterbug or a some kind of strike off beam so pretty low technology in the concrete industry at that point so yeah it did take off quite quite fast we actually first manufacturing was in an old truck shop that we had from the ready mix concrete business and uh, we'd never manufactured anything in our family's history so we jumped into the manufacturing business pretty much feet first and um how did he figure that out was he
0: calling people making visits
1: yeah, and my great uh, uncle, my, my um, mom's uncle, who was really kind of a father figure to my mother, he had worked for Alice Chalmers in Springfield and was involved in manufacturing, especially on the purchasing side. And he got involved early on to help my dad along those, the way with that. And, um, you know, there was, um, there was a magazine called Concrete Construction and uh, Mom and Dad took out a big ad in Concrete Construction, and there was a new trade show that is just getting started called The World of Concrete. Mm-hmm. And um, they decided to exhibit. Matter of fact, Dad said um, most Paragol people will remember Marlon Jackson, who was at Security Bank in the 70s and 80s. Um, Dad went to go see Marlon and um, took out, a, I think it was a five or $10,000 loan, to go do the first exhibit oh, of wow. Allen Engineering at World of Concrete in, in Vegas. A, um, back then, the show was small enough that it traveled. I want to say it was Houston okay. was where it was. So they did that, and their business really just took off. So people loved it. Yeah, it met a need. I mean, it solved contractors' problems, and so in my, what way? Well, it you know the two things that sell our equipment are improved productivity, so you do more with less people. And then the second thing is you improve, improve the quality of the actual concrete that you're finishing.
0: Yeah. Talk about that because I remember being at your dad's funeral, and that was one of the things that, um, if I remember, it was like I was in his obituary maybe. of hey, that's, That was a big accomplishment. It was something of about a grade of concrete, right? He improved? What was that?
1: Well, they're called F numbers. And okay. uh, they're the measurement of the flatness and the levelness of a concrete floor. And it was actually developed by a good friend of my dad's by the name of Sam Face. Um, and uh, it's a way to measure how uh, flat, in other words, not wavy the concrete is, and how level, in other words, how, how true it is to its elevation points. So once we were able to start doing that, the, um, the concrete that was poured in America and ultimately in the world uh, started to improve drastically. So
0: the screed takes off, the Razorback screed's doing well. When do you eventually make the move to Paragould? Like, when do you open it because...
1: Good question. Same property that you're on right now, right? Right. So in 1968, my dad bought, was going to buy the Hickson Lumber Company and Ready Mix Concrete business, but three days before they were closing, the lumber company burned down. And it was on the site there in the 800 block of 5th Street. So what dad bought was the Ready Mix operation in some of the remaining buildings of the lumber company so um so we had a ready mix concrete operation there in from 68 you know pretty much till 75
0: that's where you are right now
1: it's where we are right now okay and fun fact for you i actually lived on that site for two years when i was a little kid did you really
0: yeah why did you live there
1: um Anybody out there that's owned a small business knows that t- sometimes times are really good and sometimes are not so good. And during that not so good time of the radio mix business in the seventies, my parents decided that um, they sold their house, took the money from their house, put it in the business, and we parked a mobile home in front of what is now our headquarters building on Fifth Street and lived there. Wow!
0: What do you you do hear those stories? Of people that, yeah, sell homes, cars, whatever, in order mm-hmm. to keep the business going. What do you think that is? Passion? I mean, conviction? Like? Yeah.
1: I think for Dad, it was passion. It was vision. It was drive. Um, I think he he saw, you know, what this could become. and uh, Before was, anybody else did, right? Right. And he was all in. Anybody that knew my father would know that about him. He was always all in. So, um, so yeah, that's um, that's kind of was my so I went to Baldwin, uh, a block from where I lived, and grew up right down there on, on Fifth Street. I had a wow. lot of good friends in that neighborhood when I was a little kid.
0: So, when did Allen Engineering take off? Like, when did it become the business that it somewhat is today? And I know you all are constantly trying to improve and grow, but to where it was like, okay, like this is like this is a stable, like not just stable, but like thriving company that's beginning to expand like what what changed that what got you over the hump
1: i would say it was the advent of the ride on power trial and that took place in the late 1980s um, there was a gentleman by the name of um, holtz that had the patent to the ride on power trial and he for no connection but he was from arkansas as well and the key to the patent was a trial with a seat on it that was one of the major claims and this is a funny story so Uh, mr holtz would not um, not license but one company with this patent and the company that had the license wasn't really doing much with the product and dad said you know that's the key to our future is being able to make ride on power trials so he went to a world of concrete took a riding trowel without a seat put a box on top of it with a blinking light and he knew mr holtz would come by and, he, and uh, Mr. Holtz said, what's that? He said, well, that's what I'm going to build if you don't license me. It's going to be a remote-controlled riding trowel." And uh, Mr. Holtz was like, oh, we need to talk. And so he licensed Allen Engineering and two other U.S. manufacturers. It was all a ruse. There was nothing in that box. <laughs> <Unbelievable>. <laughs> it was just a little flashing box. He had no idea how to make a remote-controlled riding trowel.
0: <laughs> that's awesome
1: it worked. though it worked he got the patent well wow, got licensed for the patent so that's when our business took off when we started making right on power trials. that's
0: the late 80s late 80s so things at that point were going well but then there was the fire right yep when was that uh 2003 okay i thought it was in the 90s so 2003 it's a massive fire right like it wasn't just like yeah, A it big was, deal
1: it was a big deal especially for our company so yeah um catastrophic um unfortunately but we're forever grateful to parable fire department they they definitely kept it under control and say basically saved our office building we would have lost it as well but um yeah so um that was um that was tough and i think most people would have probably said you know what uh it's time it's time to be done and um, there were several companies that inquired about buying the business at that point in time and Let's see, Dad would have been in his 60s, and um, he said, you know. It been a good
0: time to be like, all right, I'm going to out
1: to the sunset. yeah." And he would have been able to be able to live a good life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But he was first and foremost concerned about the people that worked for him. Um, How many he, people
0: were probably employed there at the time?
1: Oh, well, probably at the time of the fire, close to 100, but it got down to kind of a core group of 45. And he was just – there were our – most long term, long tenured employees, and he said um, to me, he said, I just don't want to go out this way. Mm-hmm. I don't want this to be my swan song. And so, through grit and determination, uh, he and my mother and that team of 45 basically rebuilt the, the business. And that was when I took. How I called, long
0: was it before y'all were able to start manufacturing? <sighs> After
1: it the was. Fire? Um, We were able to start manufacturing probably within a year, so probably by May of 2004. Wow, so a full year. A full year. Now, we had some products that we call pass-through that we actually distribute, either under uh, typically under our label or or another label, and we were able to get those products right away and keep those going. Um, Of course, you know, a lot of that is kind of a white space for me, but if, if you remember from my story, the... I had just resigned from the business right before the business burned. And um, I ended up taking a three-year break from the business and pursued my dream of real estate, that second half of my degree. And um, so that was just the providence and hand of God because I was vice president of sales and marketing when the building burned down or before I resigned. And there was no need for a VP of Sales and Marketing when you have no factory to build product. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> so three three years forward, um, my father and I, had, you know, as is often the case in family businesses, especially fathers and sons and first and second generation. I've talked to lots of guys that have been in that situation like me. Um, it gets really hard, and it can really get to the point where it's impacting the family relationship. Yeah. And I said before we do. Um, damage to that relationship i think it's best i go do something else and yeah. so i did
0: so you did that for three years you kind of had a little bit of that break where you're not going to mix family business then after three years do you come back as president
1: no i came back actually in the exact same role i had before okay bp of sales and ops
0: that was sales and marketing
1: yeah so that was oh six yes um but when did
0: you move into the president row
1: Oh seven. quickly thereafter because to, before i came back my father and i had to have a Little heart to heart, and pretty well outlined what the plan was going to be, mm-hmm. and and he and to his credit, he stuck with the plan. And the plan was, I would t- move into the you know the leadership role of the company, yeah, relatively quickly.
0: And I would imagine that's hard. I mean, I know, obviously, uh, you know, John and Kyle Lane's done the same thing with John starting the company and then passing it off to his son. And I would imagine, you know, not being there myself, but it would be difficult if you kind of saw this dream the birth to reality, and you've cared so well for it. You've had it was your vision, right? It came right. out of your brain, right. so to speak. And it's like, and then you hand it off to your son. Yeah, I would imagine that's not always a simple transition because you're going to have right differences of vision, differences of opinion, philosophy of how to run things, and whatnot. But
1: absolutely um, different, different, different gifting, different uh, areas of focus, even different values. Yeah, about what what's really important to you.
0: Sure. So, how many countries are y'all in right now?
1: We sell on a regular basis to around thirty
0: countries. It's incredible—thirty mm-hmm. different countries—and mm-hmm. you're traveling around not as much anymore. But Pre-COVID, you, I yeah, was. pre-COVID, <laughs> you you enjoyed going all over and yes. and get to do that international flair as well. What tell me about um, what are you most proud of as the president of Allen Engineering? And as you think about what you guys have done and are doing now, what brings you the most sense of just pride and gratitude?
1: Um. I would say i think it's the uh, the life uh the living and the life that we can provide to our associates and uh, seeing uh people come to work for us and um, become the best version of themselves uh, be given opportunities to do things they never thought they could do to go places they never dreamed they could go to meet people they never dreamed they could meet of course all inside the concrete industry but um that gives me a lot of pride and satisfaction, and and really the difference we're being able to make in our community and our industry. Um, you know, you, you alluded to it, but you know, if you say Paragould, Arkansas, to somebody at the wall of concrete, they'll immediately go, "Oh yeah, Allen Engineering." Hmm. Now I know that's, that's a that's a household name in the concrete world. That's a that's a location and a place that everybody in the concrete industry would associate with Alan. Well, there's
0: even been times y'all bring people in here, right, for concrete oh, absolutely. college from yeah. all over the
1: world, right? Right. Yeah, we have. You know, when pre-COVID, we you know, it's not unusual for us to have some sort of international person into the into here once a month, whether it's a vendor to come kind of learn
0: from you guys, right? Or, yeah,
1: either it's a vendor that supplies us um, product or componentry or. A contractor that wants some more training or uh, somebody that comes to our concrete college or, you know, we, we, we do. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of contractors that like to take, pre, you know, do pre-delivery uh, checks of their equipment. So they'll come and check their machine out and see it operate before we deliver it to them on a job site. So, yeah, um, you know, we do business in all 50 states as well, so...
0: Yeah, one of the things I love about you, Jay, is um, obviously I've had a chance to build a relationship with you over the last nine years, and I, uh, you know, go to work for you, so to speak, a couple hours a week as a company chaplain, and you know that's that speaks volumes to me for the kind of man that you are and the heart that you have for your people. Because I remember whenever you came to me and you approached me about doing some chaplain work. With the people at Allen Engineering, you said, "Man, I just I genuinely care about the people that are there. Like, I I know they've got issues. I know they've got financial issues. I know they've got at times relational conflict. I know they've got whatever their own you know baggage from their past or just things that happen. Hmm. Uh, life eventually can kind of beat you down. And I want somebody there to help serve and administer and to care for the employees that work for Allen Engineering and their families. And uh, man, that's unique." Hmm.
1: Yeah, You do an awesome job, by the way. We love having you as our chaplain.
0: I'm thankful for the opportunity. It's really energizing to me. But um, Allen Engineering has made a big impact in this city, for Hmm. sure. And so I I told you whenever I met with John Wallace, and he was on the podcast, I mean, he was even singing the praises of Allen Engineering. He said, man, one day I want Ranger Tool and Dahl to be like Allen Engineering, to have that kind of – he was talking about the impact in the city Hmm. that you guys have had. So – You're doing a great job, man. I'm interested, before we wrap up our time together, um, as far as leadership goes, I know that you have, I know that you're constantly trying to improve as a leader, but you've even, you now realize the importance of even emotional health, relational health. Um, Anything that you would say to that at all, to like those who maybe they aspire to be a leader, they aspire to do great things. They aspire to maybe be able to manage other people well or whatever. Um, how important is that emotional and relational component that's often overlooked? And I'm guessing probably not taught
1: in college. No, no, it's not taught in college. And I don't think it's even emphasized um, in, in most companies today in America. But I would say that it's extremely important. Uh, I think the, the road to becoming a good leader is emotional health and self-awareness, and once you start to gain that as a person, um, it helps you to see things from so many people's perspective and understand that um, the way God made you and gifted you is very different from the people that you're being called to lead, and uh, so... um, yes i'd say it's really important and the other thing i would say to young leaders is uh, surround yourself with some mentors and some accountability from people that um are not your buddies but people that you respect are aspire to be like because there are oftentimes many older folks that have been down the road a little bit further that would help love to help younger people and uh i've benefited from that for sure and um you know, it's made me a much better leader.
0: Yeah. Well, I've personally, just as a friend, seen you grow in emotional relational health. And I know that that's doesn't always come natural to guys like you who are like entrepreneurial and very driven and very task oriented. And so I know that's been a discipline for you. And you've had to make the space and make the time for it and uh, and it's just encouraging me to see you do that and to see you grow in that area well thank you Um, oh go ahead
1: no I was going to say and you know um, there's lots of tools out there but I would say the Enneagram has been very helpful for me Mm -hmm. and as we share the same Enneagram number it is amazing how much uh, we understand each other but it's been extremely helpful for me uh, as we lead our team as well as you know just other people that I know and, and as I understand them better and kind of what makes them tick, it really does yeah, make, super it, make it it um, just makes you a more effective leader.
0: Yeah, and we've you know had Adam on here, Adam uh, who worked full time for us and the church has now wrote off staff and he's full time for the Your Enneagram Coach out of Nashville and uh, we had him on the podcast so if you're listening to this and you're like, what are they talking about Enneagram you can go back and find uh, the podcast with Adam Breckenridge talking about the Enneagram and, and learn more about it Um, that way and so um man jay thank you for for coming on um always enjoy getting to spend time with you and so typically on thursdays absolutely so um but yeah i mean you're a great blessing to me my family our entire community and honestly the world so uh keep up the great work man
1: thank you appreciate the opportunity to be here and thanks for everything you do For our city, as well as the Crossing Church, it's such a blessing to have uh, a vibrant ministry so close. We're neighbors, five blocks away. We are, man. Yeah, so thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Jay.